All right. Welcome to the video panel here at SF Music Tech. And I have a great panel here actually today. And uh, I think we're just going to get started by um, doing a quick round of introductions. So why don't we start actually on the other side. Natalie can get started here. And uh, one or two sentences about who you are, why you are on a video panel. And since it is a video panel, if you feel up for it, if you want it, you could share um, one of your favorite music videos that you've seen recently or something that you've seen online that really caught your eye. I will do all those things. My name is Natalie Dawn. I am half of the band Pomplamoose. And uh, we've basically made a name for ourselves by making video songs, which is a concept that Jack was clever enough to think of. The basic concept is that what you see is what you hear, and there are no hidden sounds. And uh, I am the video editor for Pomplamoose, and Jack is the producer. And sorry I'm introducing you at the same time. It's really hard for me to just talk for myself, apparently. So what's your, what's your favorite video? My favorite video, actually, recently, uh, w one that I saw that really impressed me was uh, one that Jack introduced me to, which was uh, a dancer, and he was dancing on the wall of China, um, and he was, he was uh, really impressive, and I don't remember his name. What was his name, Jack? Nonstop. Nonstop. Thank you. It's, the be it's really amazing. Great dancing. And with that, we hand it over to Jack. What she said. <laughs> uh, my favorite music video that I saw recently, because I think it's uh, emblematic of the times, um, was uh, a young girl <clears throat> named um, Tiffany Alvaro, I believe. She was uh, playing guitar and singing in front of a webcam. She had uh, three million views. And um, she was singing an original song just lip-syncing to a recording of her original song, and it was on a pretty crummy home video camera. Um, and she's killing it in her bedroom, making a living as a musician. All right. Next up is Mike. Yeah, uh, hi, my name is Mike Rosenthal. Uh, I do digital strategy for the band OK Go and run their record label, Paracadute. Um, favorite video? I, I, I saw... My wife showed me a video the other day on YouTube of uh, Cats and Boots. Is anybody here familiar with this? <laughs> no? Yes. It's like starts out with one person saying cats, and it's just an image, a random image of cats, and then boots, and then it slowly builds into this sort of techno dance song, Cats and Boots. And, and uh, Anyway, check it out. I have absolutely no idea what it's called, but I bet Googling Cats and Boots will, will bring you right to it. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think we need one volunteer afterwards who does a playlist out of all these videos. <laughs> right. That'd be great. And Jason. I'm Jason Ross. I'm the head of strategic partnerships and original media at The Barry Presents and an executive producer at Show Cobra Entertainment that produces all of that original media for The Barry Presents. And my favorite video right now is Comeback Kid by Sleigh Bells. Uh, my name is Isaac Bess. I do uh, strategic partnerships for YouTube, uh, specifically around music. Uh, and my favorite video is a few months old, uh, but I've been watching obsessively the Azalea Banks video for the song 212, a newly signed Universal music artist. It's kind of dirty. All it's right. really good. So it should be in the playlist for sure. Uh, my name is Janko Redgrass. I'm a staff writer for Gigaom, and I'm the moderator of this panel today. And I guess my favorite music video last year was uh, Maria Aragon singing Born This Way. And if you haven't seen it, 50 million people have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, you'll check it out. Um, so, and with that, we had, a, we had a really interesting discussion before this panel. We were sitting backstage a little bit, talking a little bit about really how videos have changed, how music videos have changed ever since MTV emerged in the 80s, and how the role of music videos also have changed. And I just want to throw this out there a little bit, um, and maybe this will be a good point for you to start, uh, Natalie and, and you guys over there, because you're the artists on the panel here. Um, so you said you, you kind of came up with this new idea for a music video as a, as a, as a maybe its own art form a little bit, an online music video. And tell us a little bit about why you came up with this and how, how it evolved and how maybe also 
how you guys using video and how you guys using YouTube has changed over the months and as you became more successful? You start. Uh, okay, well, <clears throat> this format that we use called the video song uh, really was um, a practical decision. Um, we were, uh, it, it started when I was sort of looking at my MySpace page and seeing, you know, it was about four years ago, I had my usual three plays that day and I was sort of getting depressed and thinking about, you know, how am I going to make a freaking living? And um, then I got sent a, a link to a video on YouTube and sure enough there was some dude, you know, singing and playing and um, I had spent like four months crafting this one recording and there were all these layers and it was really elaborate and intense and he was just singing and playing and, um, and he had, you know, a million views or something ridiculous and I, I toggled back to my MySpace page and sort of realized that I was uploading music onto the wrong website. And um, so it became sort of a, a practical challenge of how to convert music into a video experience for users that was both cheap from an artist's perspective and wasn't creatively taxing. Um, and, and taxing on, on a time basis too because um, the creation of a music video is a big endeavor and I've, I've made music videos before that take months um, to do, especially if you're working on a low budget and you're having to pull favors and it's a big, big project. It's more work than creating a song. So how do you create a video experience for users that allows you to upload something onto YouTube um, that preserves the, the musical experience as well and introduces people to your music? And the answer that we came up with was just film everything you do in the recording studio, um, film every layer, and then uh, film every take. And once the song is done, I mean, you can imagine a machine that could build that music video. I mean, once the song is finished, recorded, Thanks. and produced. No, I'm not, I'm not saying editing. I'm just saying the video, every video is kind of the same. I mean, it's just, it shows you the layers. That's, you know, it's almost educational in a way. So that was, um, yeah, that was, that was the reason for its creation, was a, a, a cheap and easy, non-creatively taxing way to convert music into a video experience for users on the web. Yeah, why don't you jump in? It was a, that's before my time, before I joined YouTube six months ago. How, how did you guys become um, partners? Uh, well, we, we went to the same school um, and we met. So oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean with each other. I meant uh, with YouTube. Partners. Oh, I thought you were asking that's, that's how we became a band. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I guess eventually, you know, um, once you get enough views and um, one of our videos, our, our cover of uh, Beyonce's Single Ladies wound up on the homepage and um, it got, you know, about a half a million views or, yeah, in uh, over a day or two and um, then we started getting a lot of views on a regular basis and we got an invitation from YouTube and we... Michelle. Yeah, and we, we signed up for the partnership which is the, as a lot of you know, is the uh, revenue share program that um, YouTube has with its users, with its users that get a lot of views on a regular basis. And how do things change once you become successful on YouTube? How does it influence like, the thought that you put into the production of the videos? How does it change how you interact with people on YouTube? I would have to say that being successful on YouTube is a very down-to-earth experience. It's not like you, you walk out your door and you feel like you've got a number one single on the radio. You just sort of um, are making a good living and and so you yeah um, I, I don't I don't feel like it really changed how at least how I was editing the videos or how we were making our music we just sort of kept doing the same thing and were fortunate enough that technology was advancing at the same time so we got to stop making uh, our videos on tape and we <laughs> moved into digital stuff and and uh, and it got easier with Final Cut Pro, and, and uh, I would just say it got easier. It became more intuitive uh, to sort of let the video be a part of the music creation, whereas in the beginning it was more, more of a strenuous effort to, to make them both happen. I'm wondering, Mike, if you want to chime in a little bit about how video has changed as a medium also for OK Go, because before it was like, my traditional maybe um, way to promote the music and then it became a thing of its own and, and a lot of work went into these different videos and the band kind of one-upped itself with each and every video? Sure, I mean I think 
You know, I mean, I think in OK Go's case, it was more of a situation where these were uh, artistic pursuits that they genuinely wanted to make. You know, we were talking backstage about how video had sort of historically been a way to promote and drive album sales, right? And this was sort of, it was seen as something that, you know, A, that no one was going to pay you to do, you know, that it wasn't the thing that you were, you were making, it was the thing that you were making to sell this other thing. Um, and now that that model uh, has changed so much, you know, over the last 10, 15 years that, you know, we're in a place, and, and I feel like you guys as well, it seems like there's a real passion um, to want to make the thing. Like, you know, watching the videos, at least as an outsider, it's, uh, it seems like a real artistic expression, um, something that you guys are putting out there. Yes, and it's I working. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and I think with OK Go, it's the same way. Like, you know, they, they're not just sort of showing up on the day of the shoot and saying, right, OK, what are we doing? OK, we're here. It's, you know, they're out in the desert for months and they're, you know, slogging through these kind of ridiculously elaborate experiences because it is genuinely, you know, part of the art that they want to make. And they just happen to be fortunate, fortunate enough to be in a time when, not everything has to drive to the sale of these little plastic discs. That you know, that their their sort of overall experience as a band can be, you know, playing live shows and yes, writing you know, writing songs, but also doing any other artistic thing that sort of comes into their head. Um, so I think it's just, it's just an evolving experience, and I think that's great for artists that like to make videos. I think that that's possibly problematic for artists. You know, what if you don't want to do all that shit? What if you just want to be someone who, you know, writes really good songs and, and that's your living? I think that that can be a, almost a barrier or, or an inhibitor for that as well. If I understand the, the history, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the artists were, um, felt like their ability to be creative was being stymied by their label to some degree, and this was an, um, uh, an opportunity for them to take matters into their own hands in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago. They would have just been sidelined or... Sure. I mean, it's you know, I mean that that whole experience was was a bunch of different things, but certainly um, they're they're much more free as a band to do what they want to do now that we are you know an independent entity um, than they oh, were thanks. you know ten years ago or five years ago. Or I think you brought up ago. an interesting point though there that some artists may feel very comfortable with the medium and also with communicating with fans over platforms like YouTube and others. It might be not as natural of a step. So I'm wondering, are there artists and YouTube artists, are those different things? And then as a second, second question, I guess, is there a general music-loving audience and is there a YouTube audience and are they very different? Yeah, And whoever wants to take it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all those things are true. I mean, <clears throat> you know, a medium, any medium, um, is going to benefit a certain type of artist, you know, and um, I mean, you can imagine if, if YouTube was around in the 60s and that was sort of the way, 60s and 70s, that was the way that artists were going to get out there. Can you imagine, you know, Jimi Hendrix in his bedroom, like saying, hey guys, this is a song I wrote. I mean, I don't think it would have happened for him. It's like YouTube is sort of promoting these um, kind of, I don't know, it's kind of nerdy people who, who um, uh, from from an artist's perspective, like you know, we don't really go out much, and you know, we're kind of shy, and uh, and you know, we like to sort we're of not rock stars. Yeah, I, it, that, that, I think it. That's the thing is, um, I, I think the the artists on YouTube aren't the typical sort of musician that you're used to seeing. So I think any, but any medium is going to have that. I mean, the the label. Um, the label medium, you know, that, that thoroughfare for promoting artists creates a certain kind of person and a certain kind of artist, and it's, um, and the YouTube thoroughfare creates a, a different kind of artist. And then, yeah, there is a difference between YouTube viewers um, and, other, and, and other just music fans, I think, as well. Um, you know, YouTube viewers are, uh, well, music fans, I think, often are they want to go to shows and they want to they want to um, go out? I think YouTube viewers do also want to go to shows, but they also want to buy things online more. They want to download more songs. They they don't buy records. They buy iTunes. You know. I like to think that there's a, a fundamental democracy to the platform that allows uh, content creators like you guys, who um, I'm not sure I would use your words to describe your demographic. But, uh, but who maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity before. But I think the platform also works just as well for, for existing artists who are interested in promoting their, in promoting their live experience and promoting everything else. Uh, and it's that democracy for both, for both content creators and for users that I think really is about connecting those two sides of the, of the platform with YouTube right in the center. It, it, it does seem that YouTube started that way and has always been that way. Are you, are you seeing a change sort of as YouTube gets more into the curation and sort of, you know, like you said, you, know, you guys really, you know, went sort of 
tipped over when you were placed on the homepage of, of YouTube, right? So all of a sudden, YouTube has this big power of promoting certain, you know, certain videos uh, to give them that leverage. Do you see a shift in the way of that demo democratic system as YouTube plays more of a hand in that? Well, Sorry to ask questions. Uh, certainly, the uh, the shift towards a focus on channels, which we which we um, moved into at the tail end of last year, I think. I think actually only adds to the to the democracy in some ways, and, and it's a less of a of a of a human process of saying, well, I think this is I personally think this is a record that you personally would like, and more about you connecting with the content that makes sense for you, and then and then having a succession of videos brought to you that that for partially human and partially algorithmic reasons makes sense. Maybe maybe we can take this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about what these steps mean exactly, because. See, people sometimes confuse this a little bit when you talk about YouTube channels, because there was the channel initiative, which are channels, a hundred or so, which are basically underwritten financed by YouTube, and they're coming out right now. But then there was also a general like, overhaul of the homepage and the channel pages. Maybe you can go into a little bit of the details, uh, what this means, and maybe that would be also an opportunity for you to chime in, and how, how do you make use of these new channels? Our, Sure. Who wants to start first? Sure. So, so the the website was was um, the, or the design of the website was relaunched at the as I said at the end of last year, specifically with the idea of um, of driving users into a, into an environment that is focused on channels, where where instead of going and looking at one particular watch page and then moving on to something else, that they'll be served a, one after another of, of videos on, um, that are related in, in one way or another. That's a little bit different from what we're working, well, it's sort of tangential to the idea of um, us helping to facilitate the creation of more original content for the web, which is part of what we're working on with, with, uh, with these guys. So we're, we're part of the Made for Web initiative where there's um, a certain amount of channels across um, various verticals, um, the one we're focused on being music, um, that are um, underwritten by um, YouTube. As, as part of the initiative. Um, but it's very similar to the, the deals that they have with their other channel partners in, term of, in terms of um, how those things are remunerated um, ultimately. But um, what we're focused on at The Barry Presents um, and the channels The Barry Presents live, it actually it goes live today. Um, and the, you know our focus is on elongating that, that concert cycle. So video for us is, is reaching um, our consumer base and loyal music fans before they get to our venues and then again when, when they're leaving from the artist side we're hoping to develop artists faster and get them from uh, the Mercury Lounge for example 250 seats to the Garden 15,000 seats so being able to have um, a strong um, strategic partnership with YouTube and other digital platforms whether it be um, a Pandora or or whatever best of class ac across the board. That's what we're looking to initiate. As far as our focus on channels, what we're what we're hoping to see, and and again, we don't really have the the data yet to to prove this because we just launched this morning, um, is a focus on channels um, pushing uh, like-minded users to each other. So um, I'm hoping that. Our content, um, while it's exclusive to our channel, is syndicated to uh, Noisy and Vice and Pitchfork and these other um, channels that are available to um, YouTube users and vice versa. So we're starting to create um, more of a dialogue between users um, to focus on channels as a, a mode of discovery or um, you know, like our channel is focused on live music. So you're gonna see live to tape music and live live streaming there, whereas on another channel, you might see more of a couture or, um, you know, abstract um, music videos or interviews or, or things like that. But the channels all kind of work together in terms of um, supplementing each other in the music space or in the fashion space or in the food space. So now when we talk about channels and especially the underwritten channels, we are already starting to talk about business. So let's talk about money a little bit for a while. And I would be interested in, in your take, Natalie and ja uh, Jack, sorry, I'm starting to confuse the names here. Natalie and Jack, so you're doing a couple of things to monetize your music on YouTube. You have, um, I think you have iTunes downloads on the pages. You told me also before we talked, you have some banners. How are these things working? What's working better? And, and what's the right combination to get people engaged and not, not get them angry at you? Um, 
Well, yeah, we were discussing earlier uh, having having ads on your videos, um, which we we do have ads on our videos now, um, and we do monetize in that way. Um, but the truth of the matter is that much like uh, the old music video, our video songs are an advertisement for our music, and what the way we really make a living is through downloads um, and primarily uh, on iTunes and so people you know we have we have uh, hundreds of thousands of subscribers and a small percentage of them will go and download our music and that's how we make a living um, there are also the the ads but it's it's a uh, it, it hasn't really, we don't, we don't get tens of millions of views, uh, unlike a lot of the pop acts that are on YouTube right now. Um, it, so it, it's just not as lucrative for us as it is for people who are really getting millions of views. Yeah, our, our pie is uh, pretty much half downloads, half licensing and commercial and, um, corporate relationships. And then a very small sliver of that is ad revenue. Um, so, so Isaac, why are ads not working for them? And um, what can I do to improve, or what can you guys do to improve it? <coughs> and also, how do you think ads are going to play a role in the future in artist revenues? Uh, well, I, I hope that the, the trajectory of your advertising revenue on a month-by-month -month basis is heading skyward. Um, and I, I think that uh, as your careers grow and as the platform continues to evolve, I think you'll see that, that portion of the pie continue to, to get bigger and bigger. That's certainly the trends that we're seeing across all of our music partners. Um, but maybe we can talk about other things we can do to help uh, expedite that process. Um, um, one other thing that you mentioned was, so um, there are these different tie-ins with download stores right now available on YouTube, but a couple of things might be coming in the future. Can you give us a little preview of where this is going? Sure, we launched uh, last fall uh, what we're calling the YouTube merch store and uh, sort of adding on the iTunes, Amazon, and now Google Music um, download links that, were, that have been on the store for a while, or on the site for a while. Um, we have a partnership with Topspin and with Songkick um, around the sales of uh, artist merchandise and on concert tickets and things like that. Um, and we have a, a bunch of other partners that are in the works that I think will only add to the richness of that uh, user experience and, and hopefully add to the commerce opportunities for our music partners. So Mike, how, what kind of role does branded content play? And OK Go, of course, just had the Super Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So tell us a bit about how this works for the band. And Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, si since we left Capitol Records, I mean, a lot of our um, time has been spent sort of thinking about how do you, you know, how do you replace the bank? How do you replace the, the major label uh, system in, you know, as you sort of move to a place where more and more bands are, are no longer part of the major labels? And, uh, and for us, you know, we have certainly turned to this idea of, of corporate partnerships um, to, to get various creative endeavors out the door, uh, things that just wouldn't be possible to do on our own um, that we just couldn't afford to do. And so, you know, and, and we worry about it every time we do it. I mean, or at least I do, you know, from a sort of outside perspective, you know, I feel like growing up, for me, you know, in the sort of 80s and 90s, there was a sense of, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're selling out and you're, you're a sellout for associating with that. And I just think that... Um, we just really haven't found that reaction from fans to be the case, um, much to you know my sort of initial surprise. But it's you know people. I think people get it more and more now than ever before that you know the, the if, especially you know if the major label's not there for you, um, you know the audience. You know you guys don't want to pay for the music. We, you know we, we can't afford to pay for the thing. So you know who's going to pay to make the thing? Um, and if the end result is yeah okay, there's a Chevy car in this commercial in this you know music video we wanted to make, and we got to make it, and you got to see it, and kind of everybody wins. You know I think that the verdict is very much still out as to whether that's you know a model that's going to work for everyone and, and forever but I think that for us right now it definitely means that we get to do the things that we want to do um, so we're we're very sensitive to it as a model but uh, it's it's worked out for us so far so we have brands pay we have advertisers pay uh, we have people buying downloads of course when we take a step away from videos um, people pay in all kinds of different other ways for music and subscriptions are starting to become a bigger role 
Should people pay subscription fees to watch videos online? I don't know. Should? No. Should no. people pay? Say no. No. <laughs> no? No, because um, uh, we're just we're we're just growing up in this age where content is free, and um, if if one website were to suddenly if one website like YouTube were to suddenly say, uh uh sorry, you have to pay ten bucks a month to watch videos, um, there would just simply be another website where it was free. But, but you were making the comparison backstage to Spotify, and uh, isn't it weird that we pay 10 bucks a month for, for Spotify, is, but... It is weird. It just is what it, it is. is just, it's weird, and it's how it is. Yeah, but... For now. Yeah. Yeah. When you compare to um, subscription services to pay-per-view services, though, I don't think that, that... We were talking backstage that bands that have already reached a critical mass are able to leverage those pay-per-view services much to their benefit, whereas artists that are quote-unquote bedroom artists or, or gnash it in terms of just getting their music out there and using video to do that as a tremendous promotional tool, they need that scale, and having a paywall um, pre prevent that level of discovery is probably... But couldn't we have a nice Spotify-like music video service? Couldn't Vivo start charging, something like that? I get the feeling you really want to pay for videos. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't, but uh, I'm just, um, I, I'm just I th wondering. I think, I think that we're uh, only at the very earliest of stages in thinking about how subscription works in the digital music space across the board. Um, there's less than 10 million people subscribing to music services of any sort around the world, and that's a really small percentage of the population of the world. So I think these services, whether it's Spotify or YouTube or anyone else, they're going to continue to evolve and, and figuring out how to um, extract value in one way or another is going to be an ongoing challenge, one that, that we're all going to grapple with. So I don't think there's any way to say definitively that subscription does or doesn't make sense for video or for audio or for anything else. Um, but as I said, I think a lot of companies are doing really, really cool things and I think it's only going to get better. Let's talk about some of the cool things that are happening or some of the things that might come up next or play a bigger role next. And uh, Jason, you guys are doing a lot of stuff with live streaming already. We are doing a lot of stuff with live streaming. So, so how big are the audiences for this now? Um, well, that's a good point. So um, we'll find out on Friday when our first <laughs> live stream takes place, um, 1045 East Coast. So uh, Now it's 50 right? people more. Yeah, so 50 <laughs> people will watch it now. Um, you know, the idea of, of live streaming is growing rapidly. You know, the technology is, has changed tremendously over the last five years. We've provided live streams for almost every digital platform. Um, and this is our first foray into really being consumer-facing as a brand. So um, most of the views are definitely generated on VOD. Um, but the level of support that we've received as part of this new initiative on YouTube could change that drastically. I mean, we're, we're part of the music page, we're part of the um, global splash page, we're part of you know um, different promotional elements that I think will help drive that awareness and start to create these channels as a destination for, for live, live viewing. Um, and it's serialized, so it's not you know so much of the media spend that goes into live streaming right now is about creating the awareness of the live stream and more so that messaging is falling on, on ears either during the moment the live stream is taking place or after the live stream has already happened. So they're driven to the VOD content anyways. Whereas in this situation, we're starting to create a serialized channel where um, viewers will begin to, to know, hopefully, that um, every month there, there's gonna be another live stream and, it, and it's gonna continue to grow and grow. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that, that we'll have a, um, a windfall of activity on Friday, but um, I certainly, over the years, we've seen it. Um, exponentially grow, but the numbers still aren't. Um, I think the evolution of that huge. product is going to have a, a big effect on that as well. The ability to to engage with a live stream at the same time as your friends is, is extra compelling. Right. So that that's the biggest thing that we've built into our channel. We've we've custom built a gadget that allows you to um, bring in Twitter. Well, we didn't build it, obviously, but um, they allowed us to hire someone to build it uh, to come in and, and bring in your your Facebook. Um, messaging, tweets, everything in real time during the live stream. So Google Plus, I would imagine. 
Um, Google Plus is a part of it, but um, this is this was built by Beyond. This is a custom gadget that that we paid for. Yeah. So, from an artist perspective, Jack, is that something that you guys are looking at to do live streaming in a wet setting? Would you live stream a concert? Would you live stream something exclusively out of the studio, or what makes sense for you guys right now? Yeah, we actually we did some stuff um, uh, a few months ago. We had a uh, little 30-minute uh, live stream show that we did for several months. Every and, week. Uh, yeah, every week. And it was really fun. It was a, just a new way to um, just have a conversation with our fans and just all over the world. And it was it, it took a lot out of us doing it every week. Um, but uh, recently... Um, a good friend of ours, Lauren, Lauren O'Connell, who's also uh, an artist and uh, a, a singer-songwriter and who has, has been making a living through YouTube, did uh, a show um, on... Stage It. Stage It. And made, you know, a good chunk of money in just one thing with, with 100 people attended, but they tip, you know, there's a little tip thing and they... And it's incredible. It's... it's uh, all you're doing is sitting at home and playing music live for people, but suddenly you're getting paid for it, and and it's just, and more than you'd get paid to go out to San Francisco to a gig and play a show, and and it just makes so much sense. And we we were really really blown away by the whole thing. I think if you could draw, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure if anyone's ever done this because it's kind of hard to do, but if you could draw a, a graph of users feeling of connectedness with artists and artists' ability to monetize users, I think you would find a direct correlation, which is one of the reasons why Stage It, I think, is such a successful platform. And one of the reasons why I think the bedroom artist concept has been a way for bedroom artists to make money over the last couple of years, because suddenly people who are used to seeing musicians as these people behind a wall of smoke and mirrors and costumes and makeup and all the stuff they see person talking to them and vlogging right after they sing and play a song and they realize this is a person that I'm watching who has value to me and I want to help this person live so they can continue to give value to me in the form of music. Um, there's something really honest about that kind of music making and I think Stage It highlights that because um, the level of connectedness that you feel is exponential when you're actually talking with the person and they're answering your questions in a live setting. So I think absolutely live streaming is a incredibly valuable platform and I think we're going to we're going to see it um, you know explode over the next couple of years. I think the ability to do that in a way that that um, transcends geography and um, and other hurdles that you would have faced uh, historically is really important and we talked a little bit backstage we launched YouTube in the Philippines uh, a few months ago. The Philippines is a, a big country with a pretty robust music industry, and we have a partner there who has... Um, the Philippines is pretty far from here, so um, I haven't really engaged as closely with this guy as perhaps I should have, but uh, he's been running around Manila um, live-streaming a bunch of indie rock events, and I, I thought that was really amazing, the idea that if you were a fan of the explosive Manila indie rock scene anywhere, whether it was in Paris or Dubai or Daly City, you could you could have you could have access to that pretty instantly, and this is something that the our partner is is creating on their own. Um, you think of that as the ultimate uh, scalable way for for people to connect people users with uh, the music that they want to hear. Um, I think that that's pretty profound and awesome. What other platforms can do you guys see emerge that can help with this direct connection? Is Google Plus Hangouts is that going to play a big role? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, whatever. There's loads of stuff. I mean, even something as simple and basic as as Twitter is, is amazing. I mean, seeing people, you know, people will write to to OK Go on Twitter all the time, and and when the band just, you know, takes a second, writes back to somebody or answers a simple question, people just flip their lids, you know, because they they see it as just immediately they've just had this direct communication with the band, and that you know, ten years ago that would have been impossible, right? Maybe you write a fan letter and send it off and hope that somebody writes something back, but um, there's just so much more ability. I think for artists. You know, artists who are coming up, there's probably 
a lot of incentive to engage on that level. But I think you know, what you're saying about how exhausting that can get after a little while is that that can be a real concern, is that there's so many opportunities for artists to you know, get onto uh, you know, maybe Google Plus or, or any sort of you know, back and forth kind of video streaming thing at any time. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, it's so much of you as an artist that you're giving up on an ongoing basis that it, it could be exhausting too. We're, we're replicating that the same way you would a meet and greet at a show, and it yeah. just becomes a Google Hangout, and that's yeah. you know what takes place either right before or right after these programs. Um, but the volume of artists or the volume of fans that want to participate in that is, to your point, like so amazing when you start to look at it. Just that that one little dialogue, that piece that comes back from the artist to the consumer base, definitely invigorates the conversation and you can see it start to expand pretty rapidly when, the more that they engage with it. Yeah, but there, there's so many of those little things you can do that aren't that hard. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get uh, the band members, uh, you know, to just take a little photo with their, with their you know, um, their cell phone and just send it back so we can tweet that out or you know just you know record a little something backstage uh, for the fans and send that out and anytime they do a little thing like that it's yeah it's extremely well received maybe I think we can start getting some questions from the audience soon so if you guys have some questions I want to ask like one or two more before the hands go up but you can work on your questions right now uh, it's your five minutes notice no I don't know and but um, one thing that I wanted to still talk about is how devices, new devices kind of change music videos and how that also give new opportunities. Because it seems to me like, well, first of all, there's an explosion of mobile devices, of course, but then it also seems like the best stereo in the house for many people is not connected to, to, to the TV screen. And there's some device that can stream music, video, kind of stuff on the TV as well, whether it's be an Xbox, PlayStation, uh, Google TV, some people have that as well. And um, so how do you guys see this change and how can artists make use of it? How can, can labels make use of it? Anybody? Um, well, from a personal perspective, um, at our house, you know, we have a, um, we have a, a TV with a, a stereo, and we have an Apple TV there. And then in the, in the kitchen area, we have an Apple TV there with another stereo. And then... This is know. all very recent, that we've <laughs> achieved this dream setup. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so proud of it. <laughs> um, no, music is a, is a big part of our lives, and so part of the trick is setting up all your environments so that um, they're conducive to music. You know, I really like listening to music in my car because that's one of the best subwoofers that I have. And um, you know, I but um, you know, from from a so from a consumer's perspective, I think all that technology is great. I'm not sure that I've really thought about that from an you know from an artist perspective because uh, I know that most people. Or at least, as I'm mixing, at least, um, I know that most people are going to be listening over a variety of speaker systems, so I make sure it sounds good on a laptop. You know, I make sure it sounds good with no bass. I make sure it sounds good with a lot of bass. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of important to think about from, a, from at least a, a mixing and a creation perspective. You want to make sure that your music sounds good on all different kinds of speaker systems. Jason, do you want to chime in a little bit about how pro you program a channel to work in a TV setting as well? Sure. So and I think our purview is the size of the screen is endemic of the level of engagement that's going to take place. So right now we're seeing like iPad users um, are able to sustain a little bit longer in terms of engagement than watching something on their phone. And then, you know, the and not Apple TV or, or Google TV, um, <clears throat> home viewing on like your, your 1080i like big screen, that's where our long form content is geared towards. So the channel has both serialized two and a half to five minute programming and also long form programming. Um, so depending on what device you're using, you can um, commune with us in, in, in a different, at a different level of engagement. But I would imagine that the improvements in the technology on the production side as well have some bearing on that as well. So the, you know, the idea that you can create a more. That's absolutely correct. So you know, five years ago, we might have been pushing out something at a very low bit rate in terms of um, what you were able to digest on your device. And now we're pushing out five different bit rates. And depending on the user's connectivity and the device that they're using, their experience could be wildly different. So you're getting an HD signal yeah. um, if you're watching at home. But you may be in another part of the world that doesn't allow for that, but you can still see what's going on. 
Okay, let's maybe go to the to the audience now and get some questions here. I think the hand over there, the gentleman was first. And do we have we have a microphone here? And if you can speak in a microphone, because I was told all of this is archived for eternity. Uh -oh. So let's uh, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. Um, I, I have a question. How, how does all this work when when you are who making the video or are making video that isn't for your own work? So you got your start with um, a cover song. Okay, Go has had videos that incorporated. Uh, videos from their fans or fan-made videos of your work. So how, what, what do you see that's simplifying and streamlining the licensing for fans or other, other creative people who are doing things, say things like lip-dub videos that are really popular on YouTube but are made by people who don't have any way of clearly getting the license for that work? Well, um, I think... Um the law takes quite a while to catch up to technology. Um, and so what we have right now is kind of a giant gray area. Um, I'm not sure anybody really knows what's going on, really. I mean, oh, I <laughs> <laughs> well, th th there, are, there are some. The people who know what's going on aren't supposed to talk about it. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I think th we've, at least from, from our perspective, we've run into a lot of you know, deals where they say, don't tell anyone this. Yeah. We're just going to do it. Do, this isn't public information. And um, our, we're, all the time we're thinking, well, what if we didn't happen to know you? You know, how would we know what to do? And there, there is no streamlined, um, is this a cover song? Yes. Well, then you have to buy this and click here and enter your PayPal thing. You know, there's no, there's no such system. It's not that easy yet. I think maybe that's a, a next step. But, you know, as it is right now, there's blanket licenses that corporations buy, you know, like, like a bar would pay ASCAP or BMI royalties, you know, um, uh, websites that, that publish other people's content pay similar royalties. Um, and from an artist's perspective, when you go and play cover songs at a bar, you don't have to pay BMI and ASCAP royalties. The bar is expected, you know, the host is, ex is expected to pay. And it's a similar thing in the digital realm. But, but then what happens if you live stream it or you record it and put it up somewhere? Okay. Um, we're highly scrutinized in terms of um, the, the types of content that are hosted on the channel and what is live streamed. So um, there's a lot of conversations that go on be with record labels, publisher, artist, artist management, agent, talking to them about which Led Zeppelin song are you going to be covering this time and could you please allow us enough time to clear that or please don't play it while you're live streaming it. Um, the, the onus on the, there really is no onus on the artist in that um, capacity. It's on the producer and, and the, the channel provider. So we're very careful to make sure that all those expectations are leveled. And I can just add, from the YouTube side, we're only really able to effectively monetize anything when we have all the rights lined up. And so we're at pains all the time to improve our ability to connect those dots. Um, there's a lot of different initiatives that we've we embarked upon in recent months. The acquisition of rights flow is a really important part of that as well. Um, so I think uh, it's safe to say that in the coming months and years, you're going to see a, a greater and smoother ability to, to turn on that kind of functionality. Uh, in a legal context. And it'll be easier for our partners, easier for us, and I think it'll be a win for everybody. If I could give you a specific example of where there is some gray area. Recently, um, we were interested in uploading our songs to Bandcamp because it's a very easy way um, to release songs within minutes in any quality you want, whether it's FLAC or AFE or MP3. Some users expect really high quality files. Um, well, Bandcamp has uh, a two free stream protocol. So you get to stream the song twice and then you can choose whether or not you want to buy it. And so what about cover songs? What if we have a cover song we want to upload it to Bandcamp? What do you do? And um, we contacted Bandcamp and they don't pay ASCAP and BMI royalties. So who pays for that stream? I mean, technically we're publishing someone else's composition when we do that, or Bandcamp is, and no one's paying the songwriter. They, what do you do about that? I, mean, I think now, sorry to cut you off there, but I think now we get into the territory where we should go into the next room where all the lawyers sit. Um, but <laughs> instead, maybe we can take a few more questions from the audience. Hi, um, I was really interested in um, what you guys were saying about live streaming and how that's really taking off. 
Um, I work at a company where we power face-to-face -face communications. So uh, we work with artists like Group Love and some of the universal artists where they actually, like Google Hangouts, are able to talk to fans face-to-face, -face, but in a kind of um, customized, controlled environment where you can queue people up. So my question to you guys is, um, um, this jury seems to be out about whether this is something artists want to actually do. We've had people say, oh, you know, live streams are fine, but um, it really does take a lot out of you to talk to many, many fans face-to-face. -face. The group love guys were great, and they went on for an hour and spoke to 30 fans face-to-face, -face, and the fans loved it, but they were so tired. And then there are also some artists who just don't want to engage with people that way and really think about audio as their medium and don't want to video chat with people in a broadcasted way. So I'd love to hear what you think. Obviously, I guess it depends on the band, but for, for us, um, we don't tour very much, but when we do play live shows, as soon as the show is over, we're out at the merch table, and we're signing things, and we're talking to everyone, and we stay there until everyone has left, and it's really draining. It's a really draining experience, but nothing can really make up for that connection with a fan. Um, even just seeing you on stage is not nearly as powerful as walking up to you and saying, I really like your music, can you sign this for me? And it's the same thing for streaming. It's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's really a godsend. Um, it's, it's just such a great way to connect with people um, when the merch line is over, you know? And yeah, it takes, it takes a lot out of you, but it's so worth it. And I think, I think bands should absolutely do it because, um, I mean, I did, I did a Kickstarter um, thing recently uh, to, to raise money for my album, um, and, and I raised way more than I thought I was going to raise, and a lot of the funding came from people who had had that one-on-one -on -one experience with me, um, and, that was, and they just felt like they had that much more of a connection. So. I think we can just say that you raised $100,000, right? What was that? You raised a hundred thousand dollars. Yes. All right. Did. And it was she. She aimed for twenty thousand. So that was pretty good. Thank you. I've spent it all. <laughs> As you should. We'll be in so the limo out back. I think we have maybe time for one or two more questions, and I'm not sure where the microphone is. Oh, there we go. Uh, so I'm curious. Aside from YouTube, and obviously in both uh, the band's cases here. Um, you guys have done a ton with YouTube, but as you were saying, the video is really an advertisement for the band. You're investing a lot in that. I'm curious about other channels uh, outside of the most obvious online video channel. Um, because remembering what it was like when MTV debuted and it was like, hey, it's a TV station full of music videos, and we kind of don't have that anymore. We have YouTube, but we don't have... I don't know, it's, it's a different experience than that, and again, not everyone is, does have internet uh, TVs at this point. So, is there a life for your videos beyond YouTube? Are, are there other things out there? Are there other uh, markets or international markets where uh, those videos are in circulation at all? Sure, I mean, just speaking you know, for OK Go, I mean, it's certainly one place, and obviously we've had a long history with, with YouTube sort of since the very beginnings of, of YouTube. Um, so it is a place that we always put uh, our work. But that being said, I mean, we still service all, all the television, you know, the MTVs and <clears throat> VH1s and Fuse and all that kind of thing, um, and, and definitely work really hard to get it out into all the different international territories. I mean, we always have a problem with, uh, you know, Germany and, and YouTube have an ongoing problem, so we always get fans from Germany who, who can't see our videos, so, you know, we sort of need to deal with all those different situations. Um, and, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's like streaming music videos is more or less a, a problem solved at this point, right? You know, YouTube does it, you know, dozens of other sites do that. I think, that, you know, thinking about it just, and I was thinking about sort of who would be at a conference like this and sort of um, what side of this we should really be speaking about. It's like, you know, you can go to any of these sites and actually see a music video. What can these, you know, startups in the video space really be bringing to the table? And I think for a lot of bands, it's 
you know, the ability to reach outside of your fan base, you know, is, is probably the strongest thing that any video company or, you know, or tech startup looking to get in this space could bring is like, how do you sort of bring together, you know, the Twitter fans and the Facebook fans and sort of, how do you get, like you're saying, beyond the reach of just people who watch you on YouTube and, and a company that could bring that to the table, I think would be a big value. And I think that's a lot of what YouTube is, where YouTube is innovating, but you know, they're certainly not alone in that space. And one more question, maybe? Hey, I actually just wanted to throw an idea out. You guys are talking about um, maybe video sites charging for streams, and then you're also talking about um, video sites that are accepting donations for streams. And I'm wondering, would it maybe be a good idea to give users the option of charging for their videos or accepting donations and then the website uh, taking a cut of that? And is YouTube going to do that anytime soon? <laughs> uh, you should definitely start that website. Cool. <laughs> so we have a bunch of product ideas here already. Um, do we have time for one last question? Okay. I keep saying this is the last question, but we just keep going with this. All right, Boy, all the way in the back. And I'm sorry, I know there's just people here too, but we only have one microphone, and we, but we are gonna stick around, anyway. So it seems that music rights is a real mess and people have tried to build tools around managing that workflow. Is there any movement that you guys see to actually reform the laws to make them actually make sense? As in make sense for the current environment that, we, uh, that we're in? Is there any movement to reform laws? The actual, the, the way that music is licensed and the laws and copyright laws oh, and all absolutely. that kind of stuff. Yeah, like Creative Commons, that whole movement uh, is huge and is, is being adopted by mainstream artists for sure. Everybody's familiar with Creative Commons, pretty much? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I mean that, that's the main one that I know about. Does anybody know any others? Well, I was just gonna say that the, literally the panel that's happening right now downstairs is about copyright reform. So you may be able to hustle down there and catch the end of it. Um, there's, it's extremely complex, uh, and there's a lot of different rights, uh, and those rights vary by territory. Um, we are all working really hard to figure out the right way to find the right solutions. Um, it would be great if we could turn on everything for everybody instantly, but uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and on that positive note, oh. <laughs> no, I think, I think we had a great panel. I want to thank everybody very much. And let's give these guys a round of applause. And if anybody has any questions, um, just approach us, talk to us. Thanks. We'll be at the merch table.